The Defense Department is out with its first department-wide intellectual property strategy. The instruction, released last week, leaves a lot of details still to be addressed, but among other things, it aims to build intellectual property expertise throughout the acquisition workforce, mandates that every acquisition program start its life with an intellectual property strategy, and builds a centralized cadre of experts to help program managers with IP issues. Alan Schwatkin is Executive Vice President at the Professional Services Council. He talked with me about the new IP strategy and how it might affect contractors. I'm pleased to see the department issue the instruction, uh, get that out and revise it from uh, earlier versions. Uh, and there's, as you suggested, there's a lot behind this that's uh, implicated in and uh, related to the, the policy, uh, the instruction that's out there. So, for example, we know that the Army has already issued a very robust policy of communication early on with industry developed requiring uh, army programs to have uh, a clear strategy for the use of intellectual property in advance. Uh, this uh, new instruction uh, builds on that. It doesn't replicate it. There still needs to be more written, but it highlights it. It assigns clear responsibilities for something called the IP cadre. Right. You won't find much about the cadre here in the instruction, but uh, in the FY18 NDAA, Congress directed DOD to create a cadre of uh, primarily civilian employees, but it could include uh, uniformed military and maybe some contractors to be uh, additional expertise available to the department. And so roles and responsibilities assigned to uh, Kevin Fahey, the uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, for acquisition spelled out in this policy, in this instruction. So uh, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, every piece of this is relevant, uh, but more, you can't look to this and say, aha, I now understand IP policy. This uh, really sets roles and responsibilities uh, and a little bit of uh, guidance. Yeah, the, the creation of that cadre seems important to me, too. I mean, it, 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 I mean, the implication is that both Congress and the department feel that, you know, there is not enough resident expertise in intellectual property within program management offices organically. Does that seem right to you? No, absolutely. In fact, a couple of years ago, I don't remember the exact reference, but uh, Congress asked the department for an evaluation of their uh, intellectual property skills, uh, and the department in a report to Congress said, we don't have them, uh, we don't, and we certainly don't have enough. Uh, and as intellectual property grows in importance in these programs, uh, not only in the initial development, but obviously in the long-term sustainment of those po uh, programs, uh, IP policy and the expertise within the department to, uh, to to advise program offices about it becomes all the more important. So the cadre is an important backstop. It's not a solution, uh, it's not a long-term solution, but it can help bridge a gap by having at least some available uh, to each of the military departments and to OSD as they're looking at establishing broader policy uh, and then actually ex executing that on each individual program. As you said, a lot more yet to be written on this, but from an industry perspective, what are, what are the things you're going to be most interested in watching as this policy development process continues to take shape? What are the potential pitfalls for contractors as DOD flushes this out? Well, the first is going to be uh, how DOD assesses the need for intellectual property and what rights 
uh, to that intellectual property it will insist on in each of these programs. I won't see that uh, with the Professional Services Council. Uh, often don't see the individual program approaches, but our members tell us all the time that too often the department overreaches in their demand for uh, intellectual property just in case they might need it. I think the Army policy that I referenced earlier that Secretary McCarthy uh, issued uh, is really a balance, trying to get that balance for uh, how much the department needs, what it's going to use it for, and when it's going to need it. So I think that's going to be the first test of this, is how it gets operationalized in terms of rights. Uh, secondly, uh, how much will the department be willing to pay for that intellectual property? Uh, today, there is, uh, it's often assumed that it comes along with the development cost. Uh, but as more and more development is being done in the private sector at private expense, and there's clear push by the Department of Defense for the contractors to do more on their own nickel, if you will, or dime or dollar, uh, through independent research and development and their own research, uh, the balance of ownership and rights to data and how much the government is willing to pay for that will also become important. And finally, as we just talked about, uh, who has the skills to negotiate those, um, both the understanding of the intellectual property, how it's used in a program, and the ability to adequately negotiate on behalf of the government uh, for that activity. Talking with Alan Schwatkin, Executive Vice President at the Professional Services Council. And, and Alan, let's pivot to uh, another topic that Undersecretary Ellen Lord brought up in a press briefing last week, which is a little bit of news on the cybersecurity maturity uh, certification model, CMMC, that DOD is going to start rolling out formally next year. And for people who haven't been following this, this is DOD's sort of new tiered approach to certifying contractors that they meet certain cybersecurity standards. Uh, the, the, the news being that the latest draft revision of CMMC is coming out early next month. Um, interested in your reflections on, on, on the policy development process so far, how DOD is doing, um, and, and, and what you've seen out of the drafts up to, up to this point. Well, it's very it's a very important topic and drawing a lot of attention across the Department of Defense. So, what the premise of the cybersecurity maturity model certification, the CMMC, is that every company will pay attention to cybersecurity uh, hygiene and protection, and depending on the nature of the programs and the risk that they're willing to undertake, the risk assessments they're willing to undertake, uh, they'll achieve a level of certification. So the, the draft, as you said, was out. Uh, PSC submitted comments, lots of comments on the, on the draft. There were over 2,000 comments submitted, Mrs. Lord said, uh, in response to that uh, public request for information. So the department's going to have a lot of work to do to evaluate those comments and come out with their next draft. And th that, too, will be available for comment, and I uh, compliment them for that approach. So the the goal here is to, by the end of the year, or early into January, to have a certification model with a number of attributes that companies will have to comply with, and that can then be the basis on which the department, on a parallel path, can seek out uh, third-party certification uh, capabilities. In fact, there's an ongoing effort to look at who can do that work and how the third-party certifiers can be established, uh, trained, and, and be put out in the field. 
there are a number of moving parts that all have to come together quickly, uh, but it is a high priority within uh, uh, Mrs. Lord's office uh, and also across the the defense, the other uh, military departments and defense agencies, whether it be the Navy or missile defense uh, or the Air Force, uh, they're all looking uh, hard at how to ensure cybersecurity protection of both networks and, as importantly, of data that flows from government to contractors. We're going to stay involved at PSE. We'll be commenting on the next version, I'm, I'm sure, as well. Uh, and just encourage all of your listeners to to pay attention to this and more than pay attention, uh, take whatever actions they can to ensure their own protection of their own information against uh, cybersecurity threats. Yeah, and just on the general topic of how DOD has rolled this out, I, I want to throw out a little bit of kudos from my point of view, which is the communications business. I, I think they've done just a really exceptional job of rolling this out in a public way, interacting with industry associations like yours, doing a ton of public listening sessions so that industry kind of understands this this process and how it's going to work and getting industry input as they go. And I think it looks 180 degrees different than the last time DOD imposed cybersecurity requirements on contractors through the DFARS process. You're absolutely right. We share that in the opening paragraph of our letter on the CMMC draft. Our first comment was, Congratulations to the department for continuing the communication and giving industry an opportunity to comment on that uh, because ultimately it's the industry that's going to have to uh, live with those standards and know best. And we brought brought in a whole cadre of our own experts uh, from the companies, the frontline CTOs and uh, others who know well how to uh, protect against some of these threats uh, that the challenge we all face, government and industry together, is not making this a static, you know, uh, event. Uh, the threat will change, technology will change, and how do we keep up with the pace of that change uh, to protect the networks and data not only today, uh, but next month, next year, five years out into the future? There's going to be some real heavy lifting that will have to be done. But it starts with developing the first standard, and we're pleased to see where they're going right now with that. All right. Alan Schrotkin, Executive Vice President at the Professional Services Council. Thanks, as always, Alan. Always a pleasure, Jared. And you can find a link to this interview and more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.